Hey everyone, welcome to Punkcast. My name is William Maxwell. I'm a student of Web3 and the owner of Punk9527. CryptoPunks are 10,000 uniquely generated characters stored permanently on the Ethereum blockchain. No punk is the same. This is a show dedicated to celebrating the punks behind the punk. My hope for this podcast is that we capture the essence of the punk culture, elevate the brand and the individual behind the punk. One last thing, projects discussed on the show is not financial advice. Crypto and NFTs are a volatile and risky asset class. Please always do your own research. Other than that, let's go. Hey everyone, welcome back to Punkcast. Today we've got Punk 1163, a beautiful 380 with a mole, blue eyeshadow and rare pink hair with a hat. He's the man of numbers and stats with objective and insightful tweets. He's also the director of research at Proof Collective. Please welcome Gigabrain Punk NFT Stats to the show. Stats, how are you, mate? What's going on, man? Nice to be here. Nice to have you. So, uh, so where are you calling in from today? So I live in Colorado. Yeah, I've lived here for the past year and a half. And uh, before that, I lived in Hong Kong for 15 years. So definitely still feel like Hong Kong is home, but uh, grew up in Wisconsin. Now I live in Colorado and a lot of Hong Kong in between. Hong Kong represent, man. And um, it was a shame we didn't cross paths while you were still here, right? Because you were, you were still, you only just left like a year ago, I think. Yeah, um, I left uh, July 2021 and definitely, bef- you know, it was really kind of when I got to the States after leaving that I got, that I got really big into NFTs, but I kind of feel like I should go back. I feel like there's a lot of NFT stuff going on in Hong Kong. Man, you should definitely come back. I think, um, there's, there's, there feels like there's a bit of a resurgence here in pockets. Um, I think, you know, uh, who's that? Adrian Cheng is just aped into Azuki's and, there's Animoga that's here and all those other bits and pieces that are sort of going on. So, but I, I don't think there's like a really, uh, sort of a, a strong NFT. It's all really spread out, um, across sort of Hong Kong. So, but, uh, the vibe's yeah. good. I think you should, you should definitely come. Maybe back. you notice it more from afar, like from afar, I see that like Ben Dao is based there. Potatoes, obviously nine gag, you know, Adrian, Adrian did that kind of big ape into, into Azuki. And it's just, you know, when you told me you were from Hong Kong, it just, it just feels like their pockets kind of picking up there for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, it'd be, it'd be great to have you back if, uh, if you could, but man, um, yeah, why, why don't we just kick it off? Like, uh, maybe if you can give us an intro to, I guess your background, um, and, and, and how you sort of came up with NFT stats. Yeah. So I, you know, my, my career is, is, this is kind of my third career. My first career was, I worked at Goldman Sachs for eight years and at Goldman Sachs, I did macro research. So a lot of kind of building out charts and trying to analyze markets. Uh, my second job was, I was one of the kind of first 40 or 50 employees at Uber and expanded Uber into international markets. So, um, and, and while it wasn't my job when I was at Uber, I really, just love diving into the Uber database and like, you know, digging into SQL and, and, and kind of analyzing the data there. So, uh, I guess fast forward a few years and I, somehow I kind of got the bug, got, got into crypto punks. It was really, I was really, when I started NFTs, it was all about punks. 
Um, and one of the things that I found frustrating was I couldn't find a chart with like floor price history. You know, this was like a year and a half ago and you just, I, I didn't know where it existed online. And I was trying to get a feel for how punks were doing and all you could see was like volume charts or how many trades happened. And that isn't always a great proxy for prices and how prices are moving. Just like the volume of a stock is very different from the price it's trading at. Um, so I basically just started tracking it myself and it was nothing crazy. I would literally go to the punks website once a day and write down on a Google doc what the floor price was. And then I kind of started cutting and pasting the different attributes and built out a Twitter account that dug into punk statistics and really just focused on punks. Uh, and I found that like over time, people actually were interested. And I started building out charts about punk floors and how different traits we were building out. And uh, the account started to grow. Then I added board apes. I bought a board ape, you know, back when the floor price was a little bit lower. You know, I think it was like 30 or something like that. Bought an ape and started tracking ape stats. And my, my account actually was called Punk Ape Stats. Uh, and then over time, I realized that the real, there was a lot of demand in the, in the marketplace for just like objective analysis about the space. So I started to uh, basically focus on macro and cover the entire market. Uh, and that was kind of uh, the history of this account. It's been around for about a year. Uh, and it was really through the account I got this job at Proof. So very thankful to everybody who has followed along and followed me and retweeted stuff because uh, it did help me, I think, end up with this job, which has been amazing. No, that's cool. Um, and there's, there's a lot of uh, uh, things to sort of unpack there, but maybe if you could just help us understand, I guess, your transition from, I guess, the TradFi world into sort of crypto and, what, and how you sort of got into there and then we can get into sort of the NFT side. Um, well, so I, I definitely had like a, a space in between, right? So I started in Goldman Sachs. I left Goldman Sachs in 2011. So it's been a, it's been a while. I'd say the bigger jump was from working at Uber full time to getting into crypto. And to be honest, I was never that into crypto. Like I, I actually remember when I was, I, I launched Uber in China. And when I was there, I spoke at a, a few conferences and this was 2013. And there were a couple other like Every now and then there was like a big crypto person speaking, like Roger Ver spoke at an event and I went out to dinner with him and some of his friends and they bought me like, they showed me how to buy Bitcoin on Coinbase. So I bought a few Bitcoin back then, but like never really got that into it. And it was, it was really just NFTs. Like I, I you know, I, I've worked in crypto here and there, but just never fully got on board with the messaging. And then with NFTs, I joined this community, kind of started feeling this like, connection to the punk I bought. And I was like, okay, like, I think what's interesting about NFTs is it's one of the first times I've observed in crypto that people talk about the product instead of the tech. Uh, you know, I felt like when I was looking into crypto without NFTs, like the conversations were all about, it was complex. It was confusing. Like my parents didn't understand it. My parents don't understand NFTs, but like, I feel like at least with NFTs, like we're just talking about the different traits and what we like. And you know, people who get into it start to identify with the different pictures they're buying and the different teams that they're kind of like supporting. And it, it, it feels like a lot more of a natural experience in some ways. Um, so this has really been kind of the first market I've really dove into and really wanted to like attach myself to. Awesome. And were you collecting anything before NFTs, like outside, like art? And I'm not a big collector, no. Um, and to be honest, I'm actually... With NFTs, as I've got more into analysis, I have like a decent bag. I'm like, I own a bunch of NFTs, but it's not like a huge, it's not like where I'm putting all my family's money. Um, you know, I, I think 
I think it's just like a super interesting market to analyze. I, mm-hmm. like, and, and there aren't that many people doing it. You know, when I worked at Goldman Sachs, um, to, to come up with something interesting that the market wasn't aware of was extremely difficult. Like at Goldman, we had like 25 competitors who were looking at the same stuff as we were. Uh, and in NFTs, like all you have to do is dig into a collection and put out some charts that, that, that show something that the market's not aware of. Uh, and there aren't, it's not like, it's not even a thing where you don't really have competitors. Like we're all just trying to figure this out. Uh, and it's super nascent. So I think it's a pretty, I really like, I really enjoy analyzing it. I think it's a really unique space. Uh, I can tell. Um, and, and so Mr. Mate, I've got a question from one of your ex colleagues, Dap Punk. So shout out to Dap Punk who, who sold his punk and I've been trying to get him to buy back into a punk, but he, um, he wanted me to ask you, uh, you know, you've got a really good history of picking jobs really well. So obviously Goldman's and then Uber early on. Um, so the question for you is, you know, why did you decide to take a bet on proof? That's a good question. You know, I, I think when I looked at what I was doing, right? Like, so early when I moved to the States, I actually worked with a friend of mine from Uber. Uh, and I enjoyed working for him, but I just got so distracted with NFTs. Like all I wanted to do was focus on NFTs. So I told him, I was like, hey, I kind of got to move on. I, I can't keep working with you because I'm not giving it everything I got. And I started really focusing on the analytics side of, of my Twitter account. And it was really through that, that, that I got to know Kevin Rose and the team at Proof. And I just like the job I have at Proof is really just kind of an extension of what I was already doing. You know, it, it's like he has probably the best platform in NFTs for both reaching NFT community as well as the outside community. And to have that platform to build out what I was working on was just like the perfect job for me, you know, and I could keep going to random coffee shops and digging into stats, but now I actually had an audience that cared and, you know, I could get paid for the work I was doing. So it it just felt kind of like the perfect platform for the work I was already doing. Um, And the other thing is like, I I think Kevin is one of the people who really understands how to connect with a, a really wide audience you know, I think within NFTs, we have something like 50,000 people who trade NFTs per week. Uh, and clearly, the ultimate goal is to certainly be a lot bigger than that. And I think Kevin's one of the absolute best people. He's fully doxxed, like he's just out there and very connected with kind of like the tech community. And I, I, th- I thought that connectivity was, uh, it was like a good reflection of kind of like my career as well. So overall, it's just been a good fit. Nice. Yeah, I'm a big proof uh, proof fan and Moonbird fan too, and a huge fan of uh, Kevin and the team. Um, and and so your role now as uh, director of research at Proof, like, um, what what does that sort of entail? And you know, where do you see it going in the next sort of few years? Sure. I mean, I think that the first thing, like the easiest way to describe it, is that when we launched the Collective Pass, and I'm not personally a Collective Pass holder. I only joined in August, but in January when Kevin uh, and the team launched. The, the collective pass, part of the package that we committed to them was a research product that, that gave them insights into the market and ideas. Uh, and, and he basically kind of, my role is to serve that community, you know? So every day we put out a daily report that talks about what's happening in the community, in, in NFTs. Uh, we put out, you know, a couple notes a week that give, give kind of one pagers on different projects, what our views are of different projects. And then we also put out deep dives. So we have a lot of different research that we put out, which serves the collective. Um, 
And that's like the easiest way to understand it. I think the goal though is clearly to become just thought leaders in the space overall. And we've written four deep dive reports that we've published and have made entirely public. Uh, and really, you know, I think more and more we want to build content that we just serve to the entire community because, you know, the more that we get out to the community, just like the more value we're adding to everyone. And I think in that environment, like there's more reason to get a proof collective pass and get to know the team. So I think that's the second piece. And then the third piece, which I do think is really, really important is serving the Moonbird community. And we have to figure that out. Like what, what do we want to, how, how can we serve that community as well as possible? Um, Cause whenever we put research out to the Moonbirds, there's so many opinions, so many thoughts, like just really deep insight. And that's, that's a community we really want to serve as well. So I, it's the collective, it's kind of the broader ecosystem. And then it's also just Moonbirds and, and oddities and just like, the, the broader proof ecosystem, but writing reports that help people understand this crazy market. Awesome. Now I've, I've been digging into some of the um, proof espresso pieces. So they're, they're really cool because it just cuts out a lot of noise, right? And you concisely sort of summarize that each day. Um, and then, and then I think just, just a side question then for you is like, how do you look at value uh, for NFTs, right? I think we can sort of go down some rabbit holes here, but you know, an art piece versus something with utility discounted sort of, you know, cash flow models almost like, how do you sort of look at valuations for NFTs? That is a very, very hard question, <laughs> you know, and I think especially, and I think that's one of the reasons that there's such a disconnect between kind of like the traditional finance world and like economics professors and like NFTs and crypto, but certainly NFTs is, it's just extremely difficult to put a, a fundamental price tag on any of these things, you know? So I think a, a lot of it is just really, you know, the people who I know who are the best at trading and investing, I think are much better at getting a feel for what it is going to be, like what are the projects where there's gonna be continued attention on these products, continued interest in these products. And those are the ones you wanna buy. And it's very, very difficult to say like, a chromie squiggle is worth 12 ETH, but it's not worth 15 ETH. Or like you must buy it at nine because none of those things really are true. Like, you know, these are not, there, there really aren't fundamental valuations here. So I think a lot of it is just understanding market dynamics, understanding momentum, understanding like, are there more buyers than there are sellers? Like what's the nature of the holders? Do they, are these people want to sell? And are there reasons that more people in the future are going to be paying attention to this and are currently paying attention now? I think like that directional gauge is a lot more realistic than saying there's a fundamental like cash flow based model. And one of like one to me, one of the most off-putting tweets is like, this is deeply undervalued because we're in a space where there's not really fundamental valuation. I always say like one of the biggest sell signs is a lot of people on Twitter saying something's undervalued. You know, it, it, it's just an industry where it's about like perception and perception of where is the attention going to be coming from and are people going to want to sell? And like, that's an extremely difficult concept for people. And certainly as an analyst, very difficult to like wrap your head around, but I, I don't really have a better answer at this point. I think attention's a, a really key one. Um, and you can get attention in so many different ways. Like, I think we were speaking earlier about Azuki's and just like a huge sale um, from the collection drives a lot of attention to the collection. Um, but there's, yeah, different ways of doing it. 
like that's a great example like over you know this this past month there have been i think five or six azuki not this past month in october so the past two weeks there have been five or six azuki sales at over 100 eth now what's clear to me you know and having lived in asia having been to azuki events is like that azuki is really picking up energy within like the asian community and the asian american community like they're just as well as non-asian community like there are a lot of people who are not asian who love azuki but within those communities uh this is like a real status symbol and there are 75 spirit or i'm sorry 95 spirits i think that's right like something mm -hmm. in the 90s spirit azukis and they're all getting bought up so like the supply and demand of that asset just starts to feel like there's something happening there and a lot of this is just identifying like where where are these supply demand imbalances going to happen and it's very hard in nfts like because most projects have ten thousand. you know ten thousand is so much like the most prolific artists of history would paint a thousand pieces in their entire lifetime and we're churning out ten thousand, you know with the push of a button and i think these supplies are just too high for kind of like sustained value in a lot of cases but like the real question is like where are these supply demand imbalances going to happen and where is there like longevity to that supply demand imbalance like like chromy squiggles like if generative art becomes something that's studied at every university will the fact that chromy squiggles were the very first art blocks project or arguably or certainly one of the first or certainly the first one to like gain kind of widespread attention will that be something that just creates demand in itself? And it's really like this study of supply and demand that like, that I think is what you need to do to, to be good at predicting prices in the space. And, and, and so for you personally now, like, what are you, what's drawing your attention? Like anything sort of interesting in the, in the, in the market right now? Yeah. I mean, I am interested in Azuki. I own one, which for my bag, like I own one of pretty of most of the projects that have done well, and the ones I really like, I own two of. So for me, owning one, it's not like a situation where I want to pump it or anything like that. And one thing that I will say about my account is I never pump my own bags. I have no interest in making money off followers or using my account to enrich myself. Like this account helped me get a job, and that was that's something I'm grateful for. But I'm not trying to make money off it. That said, you know I think Azuki has carved out a niche for itself. And I really like people who love Azuki are really, really passionate. I think the team is delivering. Um, when I saw Adrian, Adrian Chang like bought a hundred, that to me says that there's a whole new potential set of buyers that could be coming in. Like maybe you get new demand generation elsewhere. So that's a project I think is interesting. Um, I think right now you have to be interested in at least what's at least curious about Digi Daigaku and what's mm -hmm. happening there. I mean, the fact that Gabriel Layden raised $200 million, like $200 million in cash, not valuation, $200 million in cash before launching this product. That is so much ammo. Um, and he has built two games in the mobile space, you know, over a decade ago or around a, you know, seven, five to 10 years ago that generated $1 billion or more. Like he's just a really charismatic person that's interesting to listen to. And that's thinking in a very innovative way. So do you want to buy DigiDagaku at 13 ETH? Like, I don't know. I'm not, that's very, like, it's an extremely high price for any gaming asset. Like one thing he said on a call is that in actual gaming, there is nowhere in the world you could actually pay 13 ETH for, for products. Like they just won't let you. 
you know, like Apple store has a hundred dollar minimum. Like you actually couldn't do it. So these prices are already so far ahead of what gaming assets are worth. But if there's anyone who has the money, the charisma to do it, I think Gabriel is someone who you definitely want to be following right now. So those are a couple of the projects that I'm following kind of with interest, but it's definitely a hard market, you know, and I think we've seen over the past six months that, you know, most NFTs, like there's, there, there's more supply of NFTs than there are, than there is uh, interested buyers. So you'd have to be careful on what you chase right now. Awesome. And I don't talk about, I like, I love what we're doing at Proof, but because I'm like an insider there, it's just, I don't really talk much about products. It's not because I don't believe in them. It's just, I was hired to be an objective analyst. Uh, and, and, you know, when I was at Goldman, we didn't analyze Goldman stock. So that's a little bit just kind of like the ethos I try to bring to, to this role. And then, and then going back a little bit further then, uh, sort of bouncing around a bit, but um, what, what, what uh, interests you about CryptoPunks back in the day? I love crypto. I love CryptoPunks. Like CryptoPunks are like, you know, I didn't mention CryptoPunks, but I love CryptoPunks. Like that's my biggest bag by far. I, and I think it was just kind of the, like, I love Larva Labs. I think those guys like are super innovative. Um, every time I've like heard them get interviewed, Kevin did a great interview with Larva Labs that I recommend everyone listen to because he did it before IP was an issue. Like he did it in March, 2021, which was before, you know, Bored Apes launched. And I think Bored Apes launching was really what brought this like IP issue to the front. And it was the IP tension that I think created a lot of tension within the punk community. And I think that was partially kind of what led Larva Labs to give up the product and, and sell it to Yuga. Um, so I really, but I, but I love that podcast because you get the Larva Labs opinions before any of these things were issues. And they just have really understandable perspectives and perspectives that clearly, where they clearly just want what's best for this product and want to keep it protected, but also want to see it thrive. And I, I, I really admire kind of what the two of them built. Um, but can you I, just, um, so can you just share with everybody what the um, IP conversation was about? Well, I think that there was, there were issues where, you know, I, Larva Labs basically never signed off on the IP and said that every home, every holder has full rights to do whatever they want with the IP and monetize it however they want. They always kept a little bit of control over it. And I think for a lot of punks who built out kind of like big influencer, um, big influencer uh, status, I guess, and influence within the community, they said, like, I've helped punks and this is my punk and I want to be able to do whatever I want with it and make as much money off it as I want. And, you know, one thing about Larva is that they actually never sued anybody ever. So there was never a situation in six years where they ever kind of created any issues whatsoever with any punk ever. Like you could literally do whatever you want. There was zero evidence that they actually cared at all, but they refused to like legally sign off and say anyone can go and monetize their punk for more than $100,000. So I, I think because Board Ape set that precedent and because uh, nouns was CC0, like there were a couple situations where people started to really like loosen the reins entirely on the IP. And, you know, Larva Labs always said, like, this is our project. We want to have a little bit of, we want to safeguard it a little bit. Um, and uh, that became an issue. Yeah, I, I do. I do remember that, actually. Uh, I think it was G-Money that did that uh, collaboration with Adidas and Punk's comic. And he couldn't use his punk because of that, uh, that piece. So he had to create a, a separate icon for, uh, for G-Money to be um, put on as a brand as part of that project. Um, but yeah, I do remember that as a, as a my guess, I'd be curious what that conversation yeah. looked like. Cause my guess, and I, 
I'm way out of speaking way out of turn here, but I'd be, my guess is if he used it, he wouldn't have gotten in trouble. But I think there was like this just perception. Um, and it was just kind of like a meta for a while that like you had to be careful with your punk, even though they never um, pushed against anyone for doing it. But uh, yeah, I would have been curious what that conversation looked like. Um, yeah. But Kazomo de Medici, you know, a, a big influencer on, on Twitter has a, he just had a thread about how I, I didn't, at first I didn't really understand NFTs. I thought there was like just too much supply. It was too easy to create more. And Kazomo had a great thread about how as more and more supply comes on, the original NFT gar- like gets the benefits. Like everyone dilutes each other, but that original NFT like remains kind of like the grail. And, you know, I think it's arguable right now of if Bored Apes have in some ways taken that. Like, do you know, there are certainly are certain buyers when they enter NFTs, they'd rather have an ape than a punk. But like, for me, I just think like, you know, punks, they haven't promised anything. They don't owe the community anything. There's no drop that we're waiting for. There's none of that. It's just like, as more attention comes to NFTs, like, I just think punks over time could accrete value. It might not, you know, there's certainly a possibility that doesn't, but it, it just feel like, to me, it just feels like the original kind of NFT, the original symbol of this movement, um, the original symbol of like NFTs. And again, I'm sure there were NFTs before then, but I think this is the first one that really kind of proved this concept of profile pictures. And, um, and I think it's kind of a special uh, project for that reason. No, definitely. I, I mean, t- talk to me about your, more specifically about your punk um, one one six three that you have as your avatar right now. Um, wh- when did you buy it, and how did you come to, you know, uh, choosing those traits? Because uh, it really, really pops and stands out for sure. Yeah. So my Twitter is punk nine zero five nine, and uh, it's actually not the punk I, I use as my profile picture. I do own two punks, so nine zero five nine is the other one, which was my first punk I bought, but. You know, I was talking to, I got really into punks in the beginning and I wasn't into NFTs. I didn't, but I just love punks. And I was talking to my wife who is not an NFT person. And I was like, oh, maybe like you should have a punk over time. And uh, she's like not into it. So she's looking at these pixelated images. She's like, what are we even talking about here? But like forced to choose, she liked the pink hair ones the most. Um, So I actually, I bought a pink hair punk. Uh, also because I kind of liked them too. I actually bought it from Pranksy. We did like a personal one-on-one transaction and I made it my profile picture. I probably had like two or 3000 followers and I built out the account with that as my profile picture. Uh, but I listed it, I listed it for 168 ETH and it was like a total reach price. Uh, and then after like three months of having it, I wake up one morning and it sold. Um, so, so that which, was, which, 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 which punk was this? It was, I think it was six, four, two. Or six uh, okay, what, what, what was it? What, what did it look like? It was a pink hair punk as well. Uh, so not okay. like there are like four skin tones. There's a, there's like bino, then I guess white, then middle and then dark. And this was a middle one, like no eyeshadow, just a really simple, like middle skin tone, pink hair punk. Uh, I think it was six, four, two. And I, I love that punk. And it was like, you know, it sold. And, uh, Oh, so that was a dev punk too. So less it was a dev punk too. Yeah. Um, and I just didn't think it was going to sell for, yeah, 642. I didn't think it was going to sell for 168, but I, my view on NFTs is like, you just list them high and see if someone falls in love. Cause we've, we saw the Justin Bieber trade where he paid 500 ETH for a floor ape. We saw, 
you know, we've seen punk sell for a million dollars that were floors. So, you know, 168 wasn't a million dollars, but it was a good chunk of change. 640K back in 31st of December. That's huge. Those were the good days. Yeah. So, um, so then I like didn't have, so then I went back to 9059, made that my punk. Um, and then I built like out a pink hair vault. So I wasn't going to buy another pink hair punk, but I bought another, like a pink hair world of women, a pink hair Azuki, a bunch of other pink hair stuff. And was like, okay, like I miss that punk, but I'll at least build this vault and kind of with pink hair NFTs. Um, and then after Yuga bought, bought punks, I was, for some reason I was actually kind of bullish and uh, I was on an airplane and there was a punk, my current profile picture that was, you know, listed for like a hundred ETH or a hundred, 110 ETH. And I just, I just bought it. I, it was like one of those spur of the moment decisions and I'll probably never buy an NFT again on an airplane, but uh, you know, and it's kind of become my identity. So I can't complain. No, it's uh, super cool. Just at that point in time as well, man, you said that you were bullish after the Yuga announcement. Um, what was your, what was your sort of take on it? Cause I think there was sort of mixed views in the community at the time, right? Yeah, there was mixed views. I think it was, I don't remember cause my, I was on the way to South by Southwest when it happened. I like, I was literally on an airplane. Um, and you know, so much has happened since then. And my views have changed so much over time. So it's hard to pinpoint exactly what I was thinking that moment. But I think, I think it was largely, it was two things. One was that they're really like the V1 punks issue really was divisive in the punks community and the IP issues and, 4156. And you know, there were a lot of people who really prior to the V1 punks issue were really anti-larva. It just felt like there was so much tension in this community. And could you just um, also just elaborate on what the V1 issue is? Because I'm not sure. Oh, most man. People know. We could do a whole podcast on the V1 punk <laughs> issue. I, I have to like remember, but basically there were, oh man, I, I've like never ex explained this, but there were, there was a, another contract before CryptoPunks came out, there was another contract that had some bugs in it, which was kind of like the, which came out prior to what we now know as CryptoPunks, but it, the contract had bugs. So what they did was said, we're going to give you all a new uh, NFT. We're going to replace this one. Um, and we'll give you a new one that for a contract that doesn't have bugs. And that contract has been, is what we now know as CryptoPunks. Uh, five years later or four and a half years later, you know, all the owners who owned the, those, those V1 punks in that buggy contract, someone came in, fixed the contract, patched it up. And the people who owned those original punks were like, this is the original crypto punks. And this should be worth, you know, given this is a historic NFT, this should be even more historic and started selling, you know, and then basically every crypto punk effectively had a, had a doppelganger, had like, you know, a twin <laughs> in this V1 version. And, and it was really, it really aggravated Larva. Like Larva was like, no, like the whole point of this is one of ones. Like these are what are meant to be the crypto punks. Like these V1s were just not the attention. And they also realized that there was a little bit of an existential threat there. Like if, if there are 22 aliens instead of 11, or maybe it's 18 instead of nine, or, you know, you know 20,000 instead of 10,000, everyone's actually in some ways a one of two, like that was pretty existential to what they were doing. Um, and they came out pretty against it and, you know, they sold a bunch of the ones that they owned because they owned a ton, uh, then got it banned from OpenSea, did all the things that like really just don't sit well with the NFT community. And it just led to a ton of tension and a ton of people being unhappy. Um, and I think a lot of people forget just how 
negative the energy was between the community and larva. Um, so yeah, that, so they're like with Yuga buying them, it was kind of like, okay, like we can move on past that. And plus like at that point, like March, 2022 or April, whatever it was, like Yuga had just delivered insane amount of value to apes holders. They were just deeply creative and a lot, you know, I, I'm not an ape at heart. Like I'm a punk at heart, you know, and a lot of people, but I, I also owned apes for a while and I just saw how good they were at creating value. So I was like, like punks are still punks. You can't change like the fact that punks are punks, but now you have this team that's actually really good at generating attention at making people care. And I was like, sounds like a pretty damn good combination, like an incredible NFT with a team that's probably the best in the business at like in 2022, making people care about NFTs. Like in that moment on that airplane, I was like, this is a good combination. Maybe I'll get back in the pink hair punk game. Awesome. And mate, I just picked up on something you said. Um, you're, you're a punk at heart um, and you've had apes in the past and now I'm in the same boat as well, but I'm just curious to understand why you're, you're, you're genuinely a, a punk at heart. I think it's a lot of what I said, like, you know, I, about how this was just like the first NFT. There's something about like the people who own them. And I, I just think, you know, the, it, it, it just resonates with me, but beyond that, I think the first NFT, sorry, my phone just, or my computer just, I, I think, I think the first NFT you own, you just draw on it, you draw an affection for the first community you're a part of the first NFT you own and feel connection to. And I've never been deep in the punks community, to be honest, but like the first one you feel connection to, like that sticks with you, you know, and that's kind of, and I think a lot of Moonbirds, like it's just the, the first community they got into the first expensive NFT, you know, first big purchase they made. And for me, that was punks, you know? So if I had just like, and I had three friends from Goldman who were like, you got to buy crypto punks. These are going to be huge. You know? So if those people had said, you got to buy apes, maybe I'd be an ape at heart. You know, but this was just the first thing I, I kind of personally got, got myself into. And mate, um, look, looking back on your NFT career today, like, uh, do you have a, a memorable, memorable win or loss that comes to mind? I'd say that sale of, uh, of that punk for 168 ETH, like punks were kind of dropping then. This was kind of like, like Pranksy was liquidating, 4156 was liquidating, like the floor was going down. And I, I bought that. And then afterwards, I was like, that probably wasn't a great buy because um, I bought it from Pranksy when he was liquidating. So to get out of that trade, like three months later at 168, like that was just awesome. Um, even though, I, like I said, there was that melancholy that missed that punk. And that was like, that's one of my like reasons I kind of believe in this space is like, I just made a ton of money off this trade. And still I felt, I mean, I didn't make actually a ton of us dollars off the yeah. trade because ETH had gone down since I bought it, but like I did make money and, but I still missed the punk. And I was like, Oh, that's kind of like an interesting phenomenon. I also, I've done well with apes. You know, I like, I, I, I bought my first at 30 and w one of the things I did was I listed it for 146 ETH. Uh, and I never claimed land. So I had this ape that had like this option of, of a land of, of land. I listed it at 50% above the floor, even though, you know, it's probably like floor plus 15%. Exactly. Um, and someone who was in a gambling mood bought it, you know? So that was like, that was a great sale because right now I probably couldn't get 90 ETH for Take it. The um, so that was kind of a fun sale. Um, there was one a week where FTX, had a ton of apes that were all unmutated and listed. This was like in December. 
And they were all for whatever, like the FTX team didn't update prices. So anytime apes, anytime apes rallied, you could buy them on FTX for like five ETH below floor. So one morning I like flipped like seven. Oh, wow. <laughs> like literally I do these, I I'd get these like sort of like floor plus 10% apes off FTX and then take them to OpenSea and go into Discord and find buyers. And they'd be like, why are you selling this so cheap? Like, so I can keep recycling ETH and do it again. No one else knew about it. It was, it was one of the few times where I saw something that was like too good to tweet about. Are, are you? Are, do you find yourself being more of a, a a trader back in back in the day before you sort of started proof? Were you in and out of DGen sort of trades based on the insights that you came up with, or how do you? What's your trading style? I had moments. I had moments where I got into trading, but never really. And I will say, I've never once tweeted anything with the intention of making money off followers. Like for me, it's always, it, that's just never been my intention. And part of it's that I've had like a successful career through Uber and Goldman Sachs. I didn't feel the need to come in here and make every, you know, every 10th beneath I could. Um, there was never like, to me, it's like, this account has always been about honesty, transparency. Anytime I tweet about an NFT I own, I put bag disclosure and say that I own it. I just like, that's just not my personality or my jam. Um, you know, but there were times where I like, I got really into quirkies and I, I would get into DGEM plays a little bit, but as my account grew and I got more into macro analysis, I really started trading a lot less. I will say though, like, I will say, I do think that the biggest edge you can have as someone doing analysis is to also be a trader and a buyer. Um, and you can, like, I see some of these websites where it's just so clear that the people doing the analysis don't trade NFTs. So I would say like a lot of times I do like to trade just because it like keeps me sharp and gives me so much more insight about, like, I know so much more. If I see a punk sale, I can say five things about it. You know, if I see a cool cat sale, which is a set I've never owned, I just have like much less insight, uh, no matter what the screen show me. Um, so I do think there is like a lot of value in, in kind of being a participant as well. And like I said, I don't do a ton of it now, but, uh, that, that probably is uh, a weakness. Definitely. I mean, just, just reflecting on that as well. I sort of find after being in and out of a lot of collections and DJing a bit, you start to get a sense of the cycles, you know, pre-reveal, post-reveal. Are you sort of finding, you know, consistent, sort of trends and similarities around, you know, price correlation with different phases of the project? It's so hard because right now it's so hard to make money. Um, I think like one thing that's just revealing to us is that there are more NFTs and there is ETH and attention right now. So I think like the broader trend has been lower, but it, you know, I, I'd say, yeah, I'd say like pre-reveal, it's very, very rare that you make money post-reveal. You know, I, I compare NFTs to, yeah. you know, I got three kids and they want, anytime we give them a present, they want nothing more than to open the present. And if they know there's a wrap present, that's all they'll think about. Um, and the minute they open that present and that wrapping is out, <laughs> like it's over. They want another wrapped present, you know? And I feel like there's a little bit of similarity to NFTs. Like the minute you reveal, uh, the you know, with that ape, the minute that it claims it's land, the minute a Renga black box gets opened, like it loses so much of this imagination premium. And imagination is a bit simplistic. Like there is also like a gambler's premium, you know, and NFT traders are often gamblers. 
and uh, are in it for the dopamine and that open. So I, I think that 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 is one trend, like preserve that option. Like if I had a QQL pass, I'd probably never mint it because there's someone who's willing to pay for that optionality over time. Same with Ranga black boxes. You should never open a Ranga black box. <laughs> That's a really good way of uh, putting it, right? Uh, definitely a case of curiosity kills the kitten, right? So, um, uh, and and when you look across, I guess the, um, the 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 key punk personalities in the space, um, do you do you have a favorite one that you like tuning into? Yeah, um, six five two nine did an interview with I don't remember I think it was Raul Paul he, he did an interview and as I was listening to it I was like every line you're saying is something I should be tweeting, like he was just like hitting home run after home run with his statements and like. I'm not one for cliches. I'm not, I'm not like even a crypt. I'm not a big crypto guy. I'm kind of a big NFT guy, but I feel like he's really added a lot when it comes like, and it was, and it was, I got it more from uh, listening to his interview than it was from actually reading his tweets. Mm. Um, I found that really illuminating. So he's one guy who I think uh, just, I think he just nails it when it comes to understanding like the meme value of NFTs and just like the connection people feel uh, with JPEGs, actually that point I made about how this is the first time where people are talking about the product instead of the tech, I need to give him credit. It was, he was the one who planted that seed in my head. So he, I think he's, 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 he's just got a lot of wisdom. So he's one person. Um, I always got to give a shout out to my fellow pink hair punk, Claire Silver. Like, I think she just represents artists really, really well. And, um, is just like a really honest person and authentic person uh, in her Twitter account, which is really, really cool. Also, I feel guilty, like having this female punk, but being a male. So she, she's at least like a female punk represent a female human being representing the, the pink hair punk. So, uh, a lot back in the day, one of the reasons I made my background bright yellow, uh, on my Twitter profile is just cause everyone was always saying that they thought I was Claire. So I figured I'd at least, she's been a pink hair punk a lot longer than me. So I wanted to honor that and, uh, create a little bit of differentiation, uh, instead of looking too similar to her. Um, so those are two punks who I, I have a, a lot of respect for, but you know, there's so many, you know, so many cool people who have punks and a lot of them are just people who don't have tons of followers, but are just really interested in the space and have a ton of insights and, uh, who I've gotten to know, um, you know, at N NFT NYC and over DM. So there, uh, there are a lot of people out there. Yeah. I think you've, uh, honed in on two really um, good thought leaders in the space, right? For, I guess, their respective fields, um, get a lot of value out of both of them. Um, and if you were to describe punk culture in a few words, how would you describe that? It's a hard one for me. Cause I've like never been deep in the punk discord, to be honest. Um, you know, I, I think there is, I think it's, I hate the term OG. It's just such a terrible term. I hate using it, but I like, that is kind of what jumps to mind for me. Like, I think you just have a lot of, there's a huge overlap between punks and like art blocks. And it, it, it feels like people who almost predate this utility PFP hype moment that we've been through for the past year. And I think it's one of the reasons that art blocks have done really, really well is that the owners of a lot, like, if you look at like Fidenzas and Chromie Squiggles and Ringers and, you know, a lot of the, like, the art blocks that have higher values, like they really have not gotten hit very hard uh, in this bear market. And I think it's because the owners are like a lot of crypto punks who bought them in 2021 and have been holding it for a long time. And, and uh, you know, I think that it's, it's, it's really the, the punk community that kind of holds down a lot of these, uh, 
you know, a lot of these older assets, these older assets. So, um, yeah, I've been to like one event, one or two events, like with punks and it's always good fun. You know, it's always interesting when you meet people in real life though, like, <laughs> it's not like I have like these huge differences between the punks I meet and the moonbirds I meet. Like they're all just pretty cool people. And if you could pass on a message to the next owner of your punk, what would you like to say to them? Well, I don't plan on selling them. So I, I don't, uh, I wouldn't say that's like, you know, I, I wouldn't say that's like something, uh, I, I don't plan. Yeah. You know, the next owner of my punk, hopefully is my kids. So, you know, I'd say, uh, you know, hold on to these things. You know, these are, this is a cool piece of history. Listen to, uh, the Larva Labs interview with uh, Kevin Rose, like get a feel for the guys who started this project and understand what it's all about. And, uh, you know, be proud to be someone who is one of, 3000 owners of, of this really cool project. Well, Sam, that was, uh, that was a really fun, uh, interview, man. And, uh, thank you so much for spending, uh, time, uh, with us today. Yeah, man. I saw someone who is a proof collective member and owns a punk and lives in Hong Kong. And I was like, let's definitely hang in. <laughs> well, uh, you definitely need to need to come to Hong Kong and definitely hit us up, man. I'll, um, I'll get the crew out. I'm sure they'll uh, be happy to see you. That'd be amazing. Yeah. I can't, I can't wait to get back. So. Uh, it's been a while. Well, uh, guys, that, that wraps up uh, Punkcast for another week. Yeah, so uh, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll tune in again next week.